electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm Tyler Matheson in for Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. The latest Fed minutes out at the top of the hour. Investors looking for any clues that rate cuts are coming. Doubt they're going to find many. Uh, But our market guest says don't bet on it and uh, don't focus on sectors right now, except for one. She brings the name and the stocks she likes in those sectors right now. Plus a double dose of CEOs. First, if you're a regional bank, you're very likely a client of Jack Henry's. That stock down 8% on the back of earnings. The CEO will join us for an exchange exclusive as questions over the health of that sector linger. And as rates keep rising and mortgage demand keeps dropping, there's one housing name positioned to benefit from a rising rate environment. The CEO will join us ahead, but we begin with the markets and Bob Pisani at the New York Stock Exchange. We've been on a little tear lower these past few days, Bob. Yeah, in fact, really the past two weeks. So we've been trying to rally midday. That's a very typical pattern. And then we just moved down late in the day, sitting near the lows for the day. We were positive earlier in the day. Take a look at the major indexes. Uh, S&P is now down 10 of the last 12 days. That's an unusual downdraft. In fact, the same with the Russell 2000. It's been drooping as well, down 10 of the last 12 days. NASDAQ Composites down 6% from its recent highs. The Dow Industrials have been holding up better than the other averages, and that's primarily because it's a little more defensive. It's got some consumer names in it. It's not really an industrial index. So take a look at some of these names here this month. Uh, And you can see Amgen's been an outperformer for the Dow. Johnson & Johnson, Merck, uh, Home Depot. These tend to be more defensive, consumer-oriented names. Caterpillar's also been strong. But tech and big banks have really been a problem for the major indexes, even for the Dow, frankly. Uh, if you take a look here, um, Apple's been down almost 10% uh, this month. Uh, Salesforce is down 8%. Goldman Sachs down 7%. And Intel's down 5.5%. So those tech sectors in the banks, J.P. Morgan also has been a, a drag on the Dow, have been a real problem uh, for the major indexes. If you take a look uh, elsewhere today, retail's been doing a little better. Uh, we had Target doing pretty well, even though uh, the sales numbers were poor. Uh, inventory levels were down. TJX had great numbers overall. So those two names are bringing up what we call uh, the discount sector. So Dollar General, Ross stores also are stronger today. I think the problem that we have here, uh, Tyler, is the lack of leadership. Not only is tech underperforming, but former leadership sectors like energy, for example, uh, and healthcare are not really doing too much. Consumer staples, which would be a defensive group, are not outperforming either. Why would they in a strong economic environment? But we're actually hitting new lows on a lot of the big uh, consumer names that are out there. Some of the food names, uh, Kellogg, for example, Conagra, Campbell's Soup. Not a lot of new lows, but there's three of them uh, today. What we need, Tyler, we need some leadership right now. We're just not getting it out of any of the sectors. Yeah, and hard to expect it here in these last two weeks of uh, August, Bob, which is uh, typically a low-volume time of the year. As we go into uh, what, as you all know, is a seasonally uh, challenging time, September, October. Not a lot of news flow. 
Bob Pisani, thanks. Okay. Uh, we're less than an hour away, folks, from the release of the Fed minutes from that latest meeting. Investors are looking for any clues, any about uh, where rate mi rates might go and whether there is any hint anywhere of rate cuts. Steve Leisman at the Federal Reserve with what to expect. Hey, Steve. Hey, Tyler, good afternoon. Minutes from the last meeting set to hit the tape at a time when much debate about the outlook for Fed policy. Markets remain wary of near-term hikes that are possible while they're pricing in cuts for next year. Take a look at the Fed futures market. It shows they're putting a 37% chance on a hike in November, even while Fed officials on average have forecast one, at least one more hike. Then the story flips on the other side of the chart there where it's red, with markets by May putting a 60% probability on at least one quarter point cut and forecasting ultimately three cuts by year. And economists at City writing minutes may reveal the leading edge of a debate about the appropriateness of keeping policy rates elevated, even as job growth and inflation have recently cooled. All that's true and good arguments for doves. They want to hold rates or even cut them. Yet the hogs have gotten support in recent economic data showing how resilient the economy has been with third quarter GDP forecasts edging up. The data show an economy accelerating, not running below potential. And the Fed has said that's what we need to do to bring down inflation. So the debate over policy between hawks and doves already, we're going to see it in these minutes. It may have intensified since the last meeting. Tyler? I don't mean to spin the clock forward and, and get way ahead, but I know something happens next week, and that is the Jackson Hole meeting. What, are, what is the outlook there? Well, I mean, I think we're, we're bracing for what is that statement by Powell. He laid down a marker last year about the need for the economy to run below potential, about the seriousness of the Fed in combating inflation. At the same time, they have already uh, um, uh, had a lot of success in bringing down inflation with an economy that's been really uh, uh, tearing it up. I don't know if you saw today, Tyler, the latest Atlanta Fed GDP now, which was 5% yesterday because of that strong retail sales report. It's 5.8 today. Now, wow. I, I need you Atlanta to look at, um, is Atlanta, though, right? I mean, they're always up there uh, out front. You are correct, sir. And if you look at my Twitter feed or X feed, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> you'll see that I have documented the errors there. Um, this far out, 70 days from the publication of the uh, Atlanta Fed, uh, of the BEA's GDP report, they're high usually by 1.7, 1.8 percentage points. So there's room for it to come down. But don't let that uh, make you believe that the economy is not strong. We are running above potential. Our CNBC rapid update at 2.2 is a strong number for an economy that the Fed thought was going to be doing 1% this year. We have been at or above potential in each of the last three quarters, Tyler. And so where is that slack the Fed thinks it needs in order to bring down inflation? Raising the question as to whether or not the Fed is going to feel comfortable cutting rates next year if the economy is not showing some signs of weakening, which gets at the story we talked about yesterday, which is no landing may not be okay for the Fed. Yeah. All right, Steve, thanks very much. Steve Leisman reporting from Washington for us. Thank you. Uh, one of our next guests says the Fed has no reason to hike. The other says they have no reason to cut either. But both say that the best way to position is in this higher for longer scenario is to look for quality. Joining us now, Julie Beal, portfolio manager and senior research analyst at KAR, and Brian Jacobson, Annex Wealth Chief Economist. Julie, why are rate cuts not realistic? You heard Steve basically say, say that exactly that. 
Well, if you look at the entire history of the Fed, they have only cut rates six times when employment was below 4%. And five of them were under Jay Powell. The last time before that was when interest rates were, the Fed funds rate was at 6%. So it's highly unlikely and you know really difficult to justify rate cuts, particularly when you think about where rates are right now, right? It's not like we're at some astronomical level. We're about 60 basis point over the long run average for the Fed funds rate. Rate. And so there's more downside for the Fed in cutting rates too early than there is upside. And I think they've made it really clear that they want to see everything looking better, labor, you know, housing, shelter, all of that, before they're going to even consider cutting rates. I, I take your point that rates are not, by historical standards, high, but some rates are high. I mean, you look at mortgage rates above 7 percent. They haven't been this high in 20 years, Joy. I still think that people are thinking of the last 10, 11, 12 years as, you know, standard. And it's mm-hmm. it's just not. It's it's a True. complete anomaly to be at, you know, 0% interest rates for this long. And I, I think, you know, a lot of money managers are younger and they don't really remember that rates can be significantly higher. And if you think about, you know, upside downside, it really just makes more sense that we would get down to a place that's more like two to three percent than zero. Mm-hmm. And so I think that limits the, you know, the upside potential. Brian, let's talk about uh, the case for uh, for hiking. Uh, there, there, there is some indication that there's going to be at least one more hike. You say there's real no, really no reason to do that either. So yeah, why are we really paying these like fed guys great- anyway? If they're not going to do anything, let's not pay them, right? <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, it doesn't really seem like there's a good reason to hike. Maybe they should just hold. And in fact, maybe the longer that they hold, that can almost be like a substitute for a hike. So they can kind of switch for their rhetoric towards instead of how high about how long. If you uh, look at uh, where we are with real yields and break evens, we're basically where we were in the 2004 to 2006 period. Um, and I'm actually kind of curious if Chair Powell, if he's going to channel his inner Jim Bullard here coming out of the global financial crisis when rates were pegged at zero. Bullard made the argument saying that it's zero percent, but the economy's fine. So why do anything? Just keep it at zero. Well, now if the if you've got the Fed funds rate at five and a half, we're cruising along. Things look good. Why mess up a good thing? So perhaps his argument is going to be that things look fine for now, and so why really mess with something that uh, looks good at least so far? So if we're if we're looking, uh, Julie, at this higher and I saw you nodding there as Brian was talking, if we're looking at a kind of a static or a stasis uh, state in, in interest rates and we say higher for longer, how much longer is longer? Well, you know, I think we we all understand that, you know, getting from 10 to 5 percent inflation was pretty easy, but getting us down to 2 percent is probably going to be harder. And I think the language out of the Fed has been really all over the place as far as is it 2 percent or is it 2.5 percent? And it, it really actually does make a difference because you start to get these base effects coming into the data. The other thing is, is I don't really think that we're going to get to this place where, you know, inflation kisses 2% and the Fed is like guns blazing cut rates. I, I really do think they're going to want to see some consistency and some holding before they start to cut. Unless, Brian, there is a, a market slowdown in the economy and, and we don't see any signs of that, really. Uh, I mean, I guess uh, real estate is somewhat challenged by those higher interest rates, but but, you know, home builders have been doing pretty well. 
Yeah, I was going to say that the only part that seems challenged by it in the real estate market is with existing home sales. I mean, obviously, home builders do have to make concessions on price and things like right. that. With the housing starts, multifamily is at a record level. Single family was a record level about a year ago. So you've seen some cooling there. But uh, for the most part, people seem very adaptable. And the fact is that, uh, you know, the economy as a whole, right, we don't all rise and fall together. Over the last year, manufacturing was stuck in the mud. If we can find some firmness there, even if we get a slight slowing in services, you can still skirt a recession. So, Julie, in this kind of environment that, we, that we've been talking around, what, where are the sweet spots? What should I be looking at, investigating, researching in terms of equities or fixed income, for that matter? You know, I think because, I mean, if there's anything that we've learned is, you know, we all came into this economy this, you know, this year thinking, oh, my God, for sure, recession. And I think it's a real lesson to all of us that we it's really impossible to predict the direction of the economy. There's just too many factors at play and exogenous events that can happen like the war in Ukraine. So I think your best bet is to be fully invested in quality because if you have if you're really fo focusing on companies that have you know durable competitive protections they're going to do well if the economy softens and they're still going to participate in the upside you know if you were fully invested in the most defensive names you've missed out on a lot of this rally so i think it's really important to have balance but it's not about growth or value it's just about you know quality quality meaning like what give me some examples Qu I, I like quality too i mean i'm all for it I think I think everyone defines quality differently. And, you know, for us, we try to focus on the qualitative metrics of quality. And so that's really investigating durable competitive protections, right? If you think of a company like Fair Isaac, FICO, everyone assumed that with all of these new fintech companies that, you know, all of their strengths and competitive protections would be eroded away. And instead, those fintechs have kind of gone by the wayside. It turns out that like crawling your Facebook data isn't as good for your credit score rating as, you know, actual credit data that, that FICO has. So, you know, I think those are the types of businesses where they can absolutely defend their competitive protections and have better returns on capital that we're looking at. All right. Brian, any thoughts there, reactions to what Julie just said or any areas, targets of opportunity in your world? Yeah, the way that we're looking at it here at Annex is that we do like quality and we define it in terms of like the pure relative profit margin trajectory, right? So it's not just the level of the quality, but what's the direction or the rate of change in that. So if you kind of fold that in where we're seeing opportunities where you intersect it with valuations is more in the small to mid cap space in the U.S. and foreign. And when it comes to fixed income, instead of a, a bull market or a bear market, this might be more like a bulldog market <laughs> where you just try to clip the coupons and just kind to charge ahead. All right, folks, thank you very much. Julie, Brian, thanks very much for being with us today. Appreciate it. Thank you. See you soon. All right, coming up, Target's earnings beat overshadowing its cut to full-year guidance. Uh, but despite today's move, it is still down 13% since the start of the year. Uh, we will look at what's dragging down Target and what to expect when Walmart reports tomorrow morning. Plus, an inside look at the health of the financials with the CEO of Jack Henry. More than 7,500 small banks and credit unions rely on them for payment processing. We will look at how they are dealing with the ripple effects of the recent banking crisis. The exchange is back after this. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. 
From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Target slashing its full-year guidance despite beating estimates on the bottom line. Comparable sales also saw their first decrease in seven years as consumers pull back on discretionary categories. And as you can see there, the stock is hovering uh, near its lowest level since July of 2020, middle of the pandemic. On the flip side, TJX, all-time high, raising its full-year forecast, saying customers are spending big on name brands and home goods, home goods, home goods. My first guest, uh, our next guest, says there are better names in retail than the two we just mentioned. Let's find out why from Jan Niffen, CEO of J. Rogers Niffen Worldwide. J. Rogers, good to see you, sir. Good to see you again. Let's talk about uh, Target and, and, and why you're not impressed there, and then we'll move to TJX and, and, and onward. Well, Target gave us a negative five comp, and Walmart's probably going to give us a positive five comp tomorrow. So that's a big difference in the performance of two sort of similar companies. Yes, Walmart's much more non-discretionary. Target's more discretionary. Walmart has huge food business. Target's got a small food business. But all in all, they do compete with each other, and Walmart's winning the game. And we're going to see that when they release tomorrow. So I'm just not impressed with what Target's done. The street traded them up because the expectations were so low, but that was a pretty bad sales number. What, they does, did Target need, what does Target, Jan, need to do? I mean, you, you're, you're into this uh, at a level few people in the world are. What does Target need to do to improve performance and juice the stock? Well, Target's out of stocks at the shelf level, the stuff that isn't there so you can't buy it, mm-hmm. or high at the moment which means they're still having some kind of inventory problems. So they're getting the inventory levels down, but they're not getting their mix fixed yet. Uh They've got to do that before we're going to be happy with what they're delivering. And so they've had an inventory problem now for almost two years, right? And they've been fixing it on a gradual basis, but it's cost them money each time they've been trying to fix it. They're not there yet. Will they eventually get there? Yes. And will the consumer help them some as they become more interested in discretionary goods as opposed to vacations and stuff? Probably. But I think they've got a ways to go, and Walmart's there now. Let's talk about uh, TJX. Uh, big numbers there. Uh, all-time high on the stock. Uh, but you're, are you a little uh, lukewarm on it? Well, I'm a little lukewarm on the space. I say yeah. all the time, Walmart, Costco, Home Depot, TJX some of the best retailers in the world. So TGX is certainly best in class in the space. I worry a lot about that space because it is so overbuilt. Remember, 20 years ago, this was a little bitty business. Now these are huge businesses and there's not that many people left to take market share from and they just keep building new stores every day. So I worry about them getting way overstored and there just not being enough inventory in the world to fill them all on a you know, off-price basis. And so I, I just don't like the space. But if you're going to bet on one of those, TGX is one of the best ever. Yeah. 
and Burlington is the most improved ever. So let's talk. So, so TJX, uh, a Walmart, uh, Home Depot, and what was the what was the fourth one? I'm sorry, Costco. And Costco. Those are your four big hitters in the center of the lineup. Is there a department store that you would nibble at here? Oh, I'm kind of a fan of Kohl's now that uh, Tom Kingsbury has taken over. And I think he can do for Kohl's what he did for Burlington, which is fix the problems. And I think if you fix the problems at Kohl's, you'll see a benefit to the bottom line and you'll see people trade the stock up. I also like Macy's because Macy's has reinvented itself and it's a much better business than it was when we came into the pandemic. So I do think that they'll have a good back half of the year. And I think Kohl's will start to show improvements in the back half and probably show us some numbers in 2024 as they start fixing some of the issues. What has Macy's done that has that has caught your eye? I I have to say I like going shopping uh, and and I go into Bloomingdale's and it is a much better experience, at least in the ones I'm going to in the men's stores there than it has been historically. Well, Macy's has done a couple of things, but importantly, what they've done is changed the way they buy the merchandise. Mm. So now the buyers are completely responsible for what they buy. They're not asking for markdown money from the vendors that they buy from. They're running the business much like these off-price guys do. Buy it, live with it, sell it out, mark it down, do whatever you have to do. So you're fully responsible for that process. And they've got a better process of doing it. Remember, Macy's didn't have much inventory problems during the whole pandemic period like everybody else did because they mm-hmm. just got better at operating their business. And, you know, they've, they've got new management in, the, in place and they've done a really good job with that. And now they're about to have another change of management. But they have changed the fundamental way that they operate the business on, a buying, on the buying side. And they're also better on the selling side. But mostly this has been fixing the buying operation. Jan, nobody knows it better than you. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Jan Niffen. Thank you. You got it. Coming up, the uh, collapse of the trucking firm Yellow, sending shockwaves throughout the freight world. Up next, we'll get some reaction from a number of CEOs. And as we head to a break, here's a look at the Dow heat map with Intel, Walgreens, and Disney. The worst performers, Travelers, Home Depot, Chevron outperforming the exchanges back after this. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. The trucking industry uh, tracking the fallout from Yellow's recent bankruptcy filing. Frank Holland is at the Deutsche Bank Transportation Conference over across the river in New York City with what freight CEOs are saying about that and the state of the transportation trucking industry generally. Hi, Frank. Hey, Tyler. Uh, just a few minutes ago, we spoke to the CEOs of rivals of the now defunct Yellow, uh, Old Dominion and Saya. Those stocks outperforming the markets today and they continue to outperform as $5 billion in annual freight volume and continues to move to other carriers since reports of financial and union issues at Yellow Surface near the end of June. Other truckers in the less-than-truckload or LTL space have seen their stocks really surge higher. That includes the largest operator, FedEx. Also, when you look at XPO and SIA, both of those up more than 20%. Less-than-truckload is where multiple companies, they put shipments in the same truck. 
So just yesterday, Sai issued a mid-quarter report with a 6% increase in July volume and a double-digit volume increase month to date. Their customers include Starbucks and Home Depot. Sia CEO Fritz Holzgreff, he expects the search for capacity to continue throughout the holidays. We saw mid-single-digit uh, increases up to the disruption. So I would expect probably from there you'd see that going forward. What you're seeing right now is that redistribution across all the competitors in the marketplace. Um, and I think it, the efficient operator, the one that can absorb that capacity consistently, those are the ones that are going to be long-term beneficiaries of this. So nationally, we've seen a very clear upswing in rates in recent weeks, still negative year over year, but you see the uptick in just the last few weeks. We also spoke with the CEO of Old Dominion. That's the trucker for Tesla, Walmart, Amazon, as well as the suppliers of those big box operators. CEO Marty Freeman believes we're still in a freight recession, but he does see improving holiday demand. Those suppliers are telling us that, uh, yeah, that, that uh, their inventory levels are getting low and, uh, and they hope to, to build those inventory levels back up to be ready for the Christmas season. So we're hearing positive things from them. We're also hearing positive things from Tesla. You know, they're, they're looking at uh, increasing their production. So higher rates and higher volumes. I also spoke with CEOs about higher diesel prices that have risen about double digits over the past month. They expect these higher diesel prices to be a tailwind for both their top and their bottom line, but the higher surcharges they charge for diesel that could impact demand in the long term. Tyler. So, Frank, let's go back to the question of yellow freight. Uh, are, what are these CEOs talking, saying about acquiring any of the assets, any of the trucks, uh, the equipment of yellow? Yeah, we talked quite a bit about that. So I spoke with the CEOs of Saya, Old Dominion, as well as the CEO of STG Logistic, Logistics. That's a private company partly held by Oak Tree Capital. All three said they'd be interested in the real estate. That's the less than truckload terminals uh. and not so much in the equipment. The real estate has a lot of value. Obviously, it helps you move uh, containers in some cases or, or shipments in some cases. It gives you a home base. But they say they're not as interested in the trucks, not as much demand for the actual uh, road vehicles. But the real estate, definitely some interest. Well, maybe you and I should go in on one of these big trucks. They're going to be out there. Let's, I mean, Tyler, let's do it. Let's do it. Sounds like fun. Let's do it. Me and you trip. on an open road? I love it. All right. Open road, man. Just me and you. Rebels. All right, Frank. <laughs> good to see you, man. All right, quick programming note. As always. Uh, you bet. Don't miss our exclusive interview with the CEOs of GM and Hertz coming up in the next hour. That will be on Power Lunch at 2.30. Mary Barra and Steve Schur will be with us. Now to Pippa Stevens for a CNBC News update. Pippa. Hey, Tyler. Well, Speaker Kevin McCarthy told House Republicans he believes Congress will have to pass a short-term funding bill to avoid a government shutdown. Sources tell NBC News about the conference call, which highlighted a growing consensus that Congress doesn't have enough time to reach a funding deal before money runs out at the end of September. Lawmakers haven't set a deadline for the stopgap bill and still need to agree on policy terms. Amazon is pledging to make it easier to find discounts for the life-saving drug insulin. Rather than have people manually search and then enter coupons for insulin, Amazon says it will now automatically apply the discounts, which the company says could lower the cost of the drug to as little as $35 per month. And a new child labor law for the Internet age. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker recently signed an amended law allowing teenagers over 18 to sue parents if they were featured in money-making social media videos and not compensated properly. It is similar to the rights of child actors. Tyler, back to you. I'm going, I'm going to go after my son immediately on this. <laughs>
Pippa, thank you. See you in the next hour. All right, coming up, payment processor Jack Henry on pace for uh, its worst. I thought that was an Amazon series. No, for its worst day since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. We'll tell you what's behind the decline and ask the CEO about the state of the banks. That's next right here on The Exchange. Stay with us. Shares of Jack Henry down 7% today, making it uh, the worst performer in the S&P 500. That's despite reporting a beat on the top and bottom line. But guidance for next year coming in below estimates. The company provides payment processing services for the financial industry, uh, mostly focusing on small and mid-sized banks. For more now, we're joined by the CEO, David Foss. Mr. Foss, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Happy to be with you, Tyler. Good. Uh, I mean, you can't find fault with a, with a <laughs> report where the earnings per share whipped the estimates by 15 cents. Revenue was way up uh, compared to estimates and last year. It looks like the, uh, the nitpickers are, are picking a nit over your guidance. Yeah, I think that's a good characterization. So what we reported this morning, uh, revenue for the quarter, and, and this was the end of our fiscal year, so we just reported the fourth fiscal quarter. Revenue was up 11% on a gap basis for the quarter. Operating income up 20% on a gap basis. We set a quarterly sales record, all-time sales record in the fourth quarter. And for the year, we set an all-time annual sales record. And as I reported this morning, our sales pipeline is larger than it's ever been in the history of the company. So a really excellent uh, performance for the quarter and for the year for uh, for our company. There was, uh, and then we, we issued long-term guidance uh, this morning, top line seven to eight uh, percent per year for the next, uh, for the foreseeable future. And then we uh, shared uh, 20 to 40 BIPs and margin expansion for the foreseeable future, not for the next fiscal year, but uh, kind of as we take a longer term, term so, view. So, so why, why, are those Wall really... why are those Wall Street manies punishing you? <laughs> <laughs> so a couple of things that I think have caused some confusion, and we'll just have to see how the next couple of days settle out. Mm -hmm. There were really two uh, big things in, in the guidance that I think has confused some people. One thing is we uh, report every quarter on what's called deconversion revenue. If one of our customers is acquired, we rarely sell software. Most everything we sell is recurring revenue in nature, so long-term contracts. If one of our customers is acquired by another financial institution, they buy their way out of the contract. That's called deconversion revenue. Deconversion revenue is very unpredictable, and it's not a reflection of the operation of the company. And so we announced this morning, we're going to change. We actually did an AK a couple of weeks ago, but we talked about it this morning. We're going to change the way we report on deconversion revenue because it's not a reflection of the operation of the company. I think that has kind of confused some people, and they're working through that model. The other kind of significant impact to the, uh, to the uh, guidance was we announced a program that we called Voluntary Early Departure Incentive Program, which is essentially a, a program for long-term employees to leave the company early, retire, if they've been at the company for a long time. And that will produce some expense in the first fiscal quarter of this mm -hmm. year. And so we talked about mm -hmm. that. So I think people trying to work those into their mm. models and figure out what does the future really look like for Jack Henry is what's, what you're seeing today. But as I said, our pipeline is larger than it's ever been in the history of the company. And we're a 47-year-old fintech. Uh, so really, things look uh, very promising right now as well, far as we, I'm concerned. I have to say, you gave me a very candid answer there. I appreciate it, and I appreciate you coming on today. It's not every CEO who would choose to do that on a day where the stock is, is uh, taking a little bit of a, uh, of a swoon. Let's talk about the market you serve or the markets you serve. A and they are small and medium-sized banks, and those banks have been um, 
Well, they've been targets of Moody's, and well, some have been downgraded. They've been in the news. Some of them have gone bluey. Uh, yep. And 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 uh, and they've there's been sort of an odor that has attended to some of them. Let me put it that way. <laughs> How's that affecting you and your business? Yeah, so it's been an interesting three months. In fact, I saw you on with Frank Holland just before I came on. Frank uh, interviewed me the day after the Silicon Valley Bank weekend happened, mm. and we were talking about this back at that time. Uh, you know, the good news for Jack Henry is we serve all those middle market banks and credit unions, by the way. So we buy it by strategy choose not to serve the top 10 banks in the country. We also don't serve the little tiny banks and credit unions. It's that middle market is, is really our bread and butter uh, at Jack Henry. And if you look at those customers, although you know, there have been debates between Moody's and Fitch about ratings and so on, their performance overall has really been uh, pretty good. We saw a survey in late April uh, regarding uh, deposits, for example. 77% of customers in our space reported no really significant inflows or outflows and 9% reported inflows of deposits into their financial institutions. They're well capitalized, well run generally. They're kind of the lifeblood of Main Street America, if you will. And uh, they've been largely unaffected by what happened with the meltdown of, the, of Silicon Valley Bank and the others. But uh, you know they've been penalized a little bit, and so guilt by association, I guess. Jack Henry serves those customers. They're, we've been kind of uh, attached to some of the concerns that are happening in that space. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. our customers are continuing to spend money, continuing to look at contracts with Jack Henry. So it really has not had much of an impact yeah. on us or our customers. Yeah, directly. when we talk to some of the CEOs of mid-sized banks uh, like Wafed, uh, Brent Beardall there, and uh, Valley National. Uh, they're doing very nicely. They're not. They're not no. reporting. They're not reporting distress at this point. No. So no. And you know, when you think about those customers, so if you look at our customer base, 60% of small medium business loans written in the United States are written by the customers that we serve. 80% of ag loans are written by the customers we serve. You know, those those customers, those medium-sized financial institutions, are, really are the lifeblood of Main Street America. And if you look at what's going on overall today, as far as uh, you know, small, medium business uh, health, things are pretty good for our customers, uh, and, uh, and they anticipate uh, that the future looks pretty bright for them right now. All right, Dave, we're going to leave it there. David Foss, thank you very much, CEO of Jack Henry. Appreciate your time today. Thank you, Tyler. You bet. All right, still ahead, this company swinging from a loss to a profit in its first report since going public. Stock lower right now, but up 108% since the IPO two months ago. Uh, the name and the details when we reveal the mystery chart. Welcome back, everybody. Kava off its highs as the restaurant chain swings uh, to a, from a loss to a profit in its first report since going public. For more, let's bring in Kate Rogers. Hi, Kate. Hey, Tyler. It was a big first report for Kava, posting a profit of 21 cents in its first quarter as a public company on revenues of $173 million. Same store sales soared up 18.3%. Jeffries noting this morning tailwinds for the brand include successful limited-time offerings like spicy falafel and momentum thanks to new consumer awareness post-IPO. While the company has been compared to higher-priced meal peers like Chipotle and Sweetgreen, Kava co-founder and CEO Brett Shulman sounding like they're taking a beat on pricing at the moment being mindful of the big picture right now for consumers. We're mindful of all the headwinds that are building facing our guests, whether that's the increase in gas prices recently, uh, cost pressures on utility bills with the extreme heat we've seen across the country, student debt loan repayment waiting in the wings, and you do have a, a Fed hawkish posture that's looking to temper growth to ensure that they tamp out 
any uh, reigniting of inflation. So we wanted to take that into consideration as we give our future uh, forward-looking forecast. But guidance for the full year was strong. Same store sales growth up 13 and 15 percent. And it plans to open between 65 to 70 new restaurants in fiscal 2023. Some of the testing and digital advertising it plans to do reminded me of some of the pipeline that Chipotle's built out over the years under CEO Brian Nickel. This company often compared, of course, to both a Chipotle and a Sweetgreen. And both of those stocks, Tyler, are also some of the best performers of the year so far. So it, when he was talking there about uh, the, the headwinds, is he coding that he's concerned that their revenues could could decline, not decline necessarily, but grow slower maybe. I think it's more about that same store sales growth number because mm. remember this quarter up over 18%. That's a huge number, not yeah. the kind of number you see every day. Uh, it's something that we've seen from a Chipotle in the past. So they're forecasting full year growth of between 13 and 15%, a little bit lower. And I think some analysts and investors were kind of wondering, you know, why was that a bit more cautious than the number we've seen now? And he's laying out some of these headwinds. Again, the price point from a consumer perspective at a Cava, at a Chipotle, at a Sweetgreen, a little bit more expensive, you know, than a McDonald's, a Wendy's, a Jack in the Box. But again, it seems like consumers are willing to pay that premium. Piper Sandler talking about the wellness effect, right, that this is having on consumers and people kind of seeking out healthier dining options. And that makes companies like Kava in their eyes a win. I'll have to go find one. I don't know uh, whether there's one around here, but uh, but I'll find it if there is one. They are on the East Coast and in New Jersey, so I bet you could find oh, one. Oh, <laughs> okay, good. Thanks, Kate. Appreciate it. Kate Thank Rogers. You. Coming up, the 30-year mortgage rate now above, and firmly so, 7%. Mortgage demand dropping as a result. So if you're in the home loan business, that's not a good combo unless you are this particular company. Another mystery chart. It's in the home loan business, but actually benefits from rising rates. The stock up more than 40% this year. The CEO will join us next. Welcome back, everybody. High mortgage rates and high home prices still uh, crushing affordability. And no surprise, it's having an impact on mortgage demand. Diana Olick here with the latest numbers. Hi, Di. Hey, Ty. Yeah, mortgage rates are certainly taking their toll on home buyers, but home builders still seem to be betting on growing demand. I'll get to that in a second. Mortgage applications last week tanked again, with both purchase and refinance volume falling to the lowest level since February. This is the average rate on the 30-year fix rose last week for the third straight week to the highest since last October. And last October's rate was the highest in 22 years. And I'm sorry to say they've gone higher this week. Now, while demand for mortgages to buy pre-owned homes is way down, demand for mortgages to buy newly built homes is rising, up over 35% in July from a year ago. And that is likely why single-family housing starts rose in July as well, up nearly 7% from June and nearly 10% year-over-year. Building permits, which are an indicator of future construction, they were flat for the month and up just over 1% from the year before. But builder sentiment did drop sharply in August, with builders citing higher mortgage rates in addition to higher costs and a lack of land and labor. The wild card in all this is multifamily. There's a lot of supply coming to the market now, and apartment starts are cooling off a lot. And rents are coming down a little bit, but there's still strong demand. So. Let me see if I'm understanding this. The the new home, the buyers of new homes remain pretty strong. And so yes. home builders, but the existing home, the so-called existing homeowners, they're staying put. 
Yes. So there's no supply on the existing home market, and that's why you're not seeing any demand for mortgages. And because rates are so high, people who might have wanted to sell and move somewhere else are staying put because they don't want to give up a 3% rate for a 7-plus percent rate. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And then those houses in the few that are on sale in my particular town, they are still going way above the asking price because yep. there are so few of them. Exactly. Bidding wars, multiple offers, and people really stretching. In fact, using lower-cost loans like ARM loans, which have lower rates, adjustable rate mortgages, that share is actually rising as people try to save money on the mortgage side so they can pay more for the yeah, house. Yeah, something we have not seen in a long, long time, the popularity of ARMS, though I remember them so well in the 80s and 90s. All right, Di, stay right there if you don't mind, because uh, while higher rates continue to hinder the mortgage demand more broadly, they actually might provide a, a sort of silver lining to our next guest, shares of mortgage lender Mr. Cooper group are up a whopping 41% this year. So could this be a hedge against rising rates? Joining us now is Jay Bray, chairman and CEO of the Mr. Cooper Group. Jay, welcome. Good to have you with us. You sort of have the, have the mortgage market straddled. You're a large mortgage servicer, but you are also an originator. So talk to me about those two sort of rivers of business. Which one is doing best right now and why? Thanks, Tyler. It's nice to be here. The servicing business is crushing it right now. We have a balanced business model, as you mentioned, you know, both in the origination side as well as the servicing side. And, you know, homeowners, Diana said it well, existing homeowners are staying in their home. And that's great for the servicing business. So it's doing incredibly well. And the origination side of the business less well, I would take. Absolutely. That business has slowed down dramatically. Um, and, you know, it's really all due to rates. And, you know, we don't really see that returning for, you know, probably until sometime next year. I don't think rates will go down. So, you know, we we are investing in our origination platform. We want to be ready for the next cycle. Uh, but right now it's all about servicing. And Jay, you mentioned a couple of months ago that with all the bank consolidation, uh, with them trying to get out of the mortgage market, that there would be opportunities for companies like yours as you take on some of these assets. How has that played out? It's played out just like I said, it's uh, been fantastic. I mean, we, if you look at the marketplace today, there's a lot of servicing that's being sold. And we've been a big beneficiary of that. You know, we would have acquired this year already over a hundred billion in servicing. And so we think that trend's gonna continue uh, and don't see it slowing down anytime soon. And obviously, distress in the mortgage market is next to nothing right now. But as we see the home builders with high prices buying down some of the mortgage rates and buyers really struggling to get into new construction, maybe paying more than they might have wanted to, do you anticipate over the next coming years that you might see some distress in the market because people are stretching so much? I think you could see some distress. Like to your point, we're not really seeing anything right now that's concerning. Uh, home buyers have a lot of or homeowners have a ton of equity. Uh, but over time, you know, you will see some stress. And, but I think we're probably a year to 18 months away from that. Well, I want to talk about another, yet another thread in your, in your business, and that is the home auction business, which you're in, right? That's right. Home auctions. And, and I, I was speaking to a dear friend of mine who is from Australia, and he says that almost every home in Australia is sold at an auction where people go and actually bid. Do you th t talk to me about that? 
uh, line of business for you. And do you see that as something that could be a growth uh, avenue for your company? Will people become more accustomed to going and actually bidding in an active way at auction on a home? You know, Teller, I think I do think it's going to come. I think there will be a marketplace uh, where you will actually see kind of retail homes being sold. Um, today, our auction is predominantly focused on uh, the government programs. And so we sell through our, our marketplace today. It's called Zone. Uh, but, yeah, I do think you're going to see, you know, a marketplace where people can actually go and list their home and there will be a competitive bidding process just like you described in Australia. And just looking into your crystal ball, I keep hearing everyone say, well, mortgage rates are high right now, but we expect them to pull back in the fall. And they've literally been saying that for months now, and we just <laughs> continue to see them push higher. You're in the business. In your crystal ball, where do you see rates going in the fall? I do not see them uh, going down. I mean, the way I think about it personally is I don't think you'll see rates come down until probably second quarter of next year. I think right, rates are going to stay higher for longer. And, you know, if you just look at the overall Fed, what they're doing, you look at unemployment, you look at, you know, it's it's just the strength of the economy. I think uh, rates are going to stay higher for longer. If rates go up, I mean, typically speaking, if rates go up and stay up, you would think that would retard price growth. But it doesn't seem really to have done that in a big way. No, you're talking about home prices? Home prices, yes. Yeah, no, I, because of the supply. You know, like you talked about earlier, there's just not a, I mean, there's millions of homeowners that have the 3% interest rates, right? And so there's no incentive for them to sell. If they did sell, where would they go? So I just think because of the supply imbalance, uh, you're not going to see, you know, prices come down in a significant way. All right, Jay, thank you very much. Diana, thanks for sticking around. Appreciate it, both of you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. And that, folks, does it for The Exchange for this hour. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis, which could lead to psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix treats both. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, 300 milligram dose, and adults with active psoriatic arthritis, 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix.